0: afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Today, we're going to continue with Guide Talk. So if you've uh, just joined us the last hour, I had the power panel in place, in position, well behaved. Everyone has been doing a really wonderful job today. The power panel consists of the Toms and 007. Peter Kapsner is not joining us today, but uh, pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepsen is the power squad today. Very glad to have them all here, and they've been able to... uh, adjust their calendars accordingly to stay a little bit longer today, So, which is good because lots more questions are still coming in. And in the second half of the hour, uh, Pastor Eric Davis will be joining me, so that'll be nice. So here's one gentleman. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Please explain.
1: Yeah, I, this is great. This is actually a, Sermon on the Mount. It's been one of the places I've just been a little bit more um, kind of deeper level study, just because that's what we're walking through in chapel um, at Northwestern with students. And um, I think there's a lot of different places. You know, Jesus talks about uh, salt in other places as well. But I think salt, um, yeah, how does salt lose its saltiness? I think salt loses its saltiness when it fails to be distinct um, from the from the world around us, when we lose our our distinctiveness as Christians, in other words, you know, salt is meant to, like, flavor food. Our presence is meant to flavor the environment um, in which we dwell, and salt is also meant to preserve. Um, it's meant to keep enter into places where there's decay, where there's corruption, um, and essentially, it's a kind of our defensive posture towards the forces of evil. Whereas light would be more of the offensive posture. Uh, and uh, that we have in the world. Um, but I think saltiness and holiness um, really go hand in hand. But I, I think the the way that I like to phrase it is that our holiness ought to lead to others' wholeness, if you put it that way, to kind of a play on words. So in other words, we are called to bring out the best in people in the same way that salt is meant to bring out the best in food. And I think uh, the last thing I'll say is I think salt loses its saltiness when it stays in the salt shaker. In other words, salt is only effective if it comes into contact with something else. In other words, if we are not engaging and going into the places of where there's decay, where there's corruption in the world, then we're losing our saltiness because we're meant to actually get out and touch those places um, so that we can bring the preserving, purifying, and flavoring power. I'd say of of God's kingdom.
2: I think we forget that we have a mission. We're not just going to get saved to go to heaven. We have a mission right now, and for all the years we're in this world, and that is to reflect the truth of Jesus Christ and what he says to the world around us. The problem is I think a lot of us get content going to church or we get content going to Bible study or we get content just having our devotions at home when in essence Jesus is saying here, look, I didn't save you just so you could get to heaven. You're saved so that you can bring others with you. And I think that's what we've got to get in our head. And when you look at this passage here about saltiness and losing its saltiness, there are many passages in Scripture that I think most Christians would like to skip because they're based or they're conditioned upon our ongoing relationship with Jesus, not simply a one-time event at a rally when we gave our heart to him. So it's this ongoing relationship that's critical. And if we walk in that and live that out, even with errors, because we can repent in that, that's well and good. But it's when we think, oh, it's all done now. I'm going to heaven. I've got my ticket. I don't have to worry about anything. And then go out and live our life as though we don't even know who he is. And I see too much of that. As my son said, who lives in Texas, he said, Dad, everybody in Texas is born again. I said, what do you mean everybody in Texas born again? Everybody I've met has gone forward at a rally, at church, or whatever it is. But it hasn't changed the way they think, the way they behave, the way they treat their spouses. And they still kick the dog.
3: Well, and the the only thing I would add is that verse is not an easy verse to interpret. It can have a couple different meanings. And so I would just encourage the listener, like I've done before, get a good Bible commentary, buy the ESV Study Bible. And when you come across a verse like that, that you don't know quite what he's meaning— you can look down at the bottom of the page, and there's a, a, a footnote telling you two or three possibilities. There are some things in Scripture that really are we, nobody knows exactly what it means. I'm thinking parts of Daniel, for instance. And um, But again, it's well worth your, the investment to buy a, either a one-volume, big, thick uh, book of uh, commentary on the Bible or the ESV Study Bible.
1: Yeah, and I think along with that, Tom, that's such a great point. Um, and I think here is where you know scripture interpreting scripture. I think we need to look at you know what what does a life that it, that is salty look like, so to speak. Um, and I think you look at what Jesus just got done talking about in the Sermon on the Mount was the Beatitudes. And uh, essentially, the Beatitudes it's it's about living a life marked by humility, justice, and peace. Uh, a life that is that is fully engaged with Jesus as as one's king and as their great shepherd and following after the course of, uh, of his path and of his way of life. And so I think if we look, look, I would encourage you to look back through the Beatitudes and in terms of just the, the type of actions, the type of dispositions that Jesus is describing. And uh, if we live our life after the pattern of the Beatitudes, um, I think the, the outcome of that, the, the fruit of that will be uh, a life that's marked by one that's salt and one that's light.
2: Can I just add to that, Justin? I'm looking at it right in my Bible. And if you look at verse 10, 11, and 12, it's all talking about, blessed are you, and it's about persecution. Christians are being persecuted for following him, for doing his will. And he says, ultimately, in verse 12, rejoice, because the prophets were also persecuted. But understand this, you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't let the mm-hmm. world drive you down to a point where you can't speak any longer. And that's what mm-hmm. we need today, are Christians that are loving and outspoken and are willing to stand up no matter the cost.
1: And, and I, yeah, I, I, just to add to that, again, I think what I love about this too is that Jesus, in remembering who he's speaking to, here he's, he's talking to essentially just a, a, a group of common, ordinary people in Galilee, and I think what's so amazing about this is he doesn't tell them that they're going to become salt or that they have salt or, hey, when I'm done with you, you're going to be salt. He says that they are salt. So yes. he's affirming something in them that I, I, would, I would venture to guess they probably don't even know is true about themselves. And, so, and I think that idea, he's saying this is who you are. So now, you know, and I think that idea, I think we have to, you know, do certain things or we have to achieve certain things. And then I reach the status of, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian That, is salt. You know, we have the very spirit of Christ living and dwelling in us and uh, that he's calling forth, you know, who they already are and for them to become who they already are. And, and I think when we look at the, you know, the world around us today, I think the greatest problem of our world isn't the presence of you know, decay and and uh, corruption. It's the it's it's the absence of salt. It's it's not the pervas- pervasiveness of darkness. It's the absence of light. Oh, yeah. so I think G- you know Jesus is <laughs> saying, hey, come. This is this this is my kingdom. This is kingdom life 101. And mm-hmm. um, but I, I just love that He says, you are salt. You are light. And just affirming in them. Um, what he knows to be true, even if they don't necessarily see it or believe it yet.
2: You said that well, and when you think about it, Christians and the Christian church are the most powerful force in the world. We just can't get organized and work together. We're all doing our own individual thing, when if we would actually unite together under the banner of our Lord Jesus Christ, the things that you and I complain about all the time or are worried about or we look at in our culture would end quickly with that kind of witness and presence, but and just, we're too individualistic. I,
3: well, and Tom, what you said earlier about linking saltiness with the willingness to be persecuted. Yes. I mean, in, in, in the news last week uh, the new administration is pushing the transgender bathrooms stuff. And let's say you're a school administrator and you're getting the directive from on high now that you have to let a, a boy use the girl's bathroom and you've got girls that don't want uh, this boy who thinks he's a girl in the shower Are you going to succumb to that, or are you going to lose your job, or at least are you going to try to get some legal protection or a lawsuit? But I think saltiness right now means not willing to lay down and play dead when God is calling you to stand up and, in a humble uh, way, fight. So I I think the reason we've reached the point in America where craziness has taken over is because Christians have been quietly living their lives when we should be standing up for the Lord.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to bring on an extra special guest out of nowhere. Well, he's not out of nowhere, but you'll know who he is, I think, when he joins. I think you'll recognize his voice. We're not sure. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Guide Talk. Just adding into the last 12 minutes is Peter Capster. Peter, welcome.
4: Hey, thanks, Bill. Thanks for calling. I heard that those guys are
0: spouting quite a bit of heresy, so you needed the human <laughs> counsel for to come in here. I had to bring it back. <laughs> I had to get it back in order. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> it's great to be with you. Yeah. I know you're doing duty for Carmen this week, so you're doing the morning show. So you've got a lot of hours uh, here at the studio, and I appreciate uh, you taking a little time with us today.
4: Yeah, no, of course. I miss being on the show with you guys. You're right. I've been up uh, bright and early. As you all know, you and I both used to do the morning show, and uh, so I was a little bit in la-la land this afternoon sleeping away, but uh, I I suspect you guys are having a great
0: program. Yeah, we are. We're having a blast. All right, here's a um, passage—not a passage, a question. Uh, Do you have people in your life who are unsaved that you spend regular time with? What is the line between reaching the lost for Christ and being careful to not be in bad company, as bad company corrupts good character?
4: I'm hmm. uh, sure. I guess I'll go first, since I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where we brought I you on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I absolutely do. Minutes. I it for sure have people that are. Um, that I that I am walking out life with that are not believers at this point, but I I guess I would the best that I can take my cues from Jesus and and who he spent time with around his table. I mean, he was being with people uh, of such a, a nature that the religious leaders and religious elite uh, of the day thought that he was just a big sinner and publican like they were, and uh, and so I think if you begin to live the kind of life in, in which the Spirit is dwelling within you, I think you kind of know when maybe you should get out of Dodge for a bit because you're probably in a place of weakness where you don't belong in those places. But at the same time, that's where we're supposed to be, right? I mean, Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. So who who should we be spending time with? And and I find the, the company of believers be in that place of empowering and equipping us for life in the mission that we're called to, which is to do what Jesus did, which is what I just said, to seek and save the lost. So I would hope that to some degree, anybody who is following Jesus also has people that are not following Jesus in their life.
2: Agreed. I mean that we have to be going out on literally the highways and byways and among the people that are the so-called sinners that don't know Jesus, how else are they ever going to get to know him? The key is you have to be able to watch, you have to look at your own maturity And you need to make yourself accountable to other Christians so that you don't get caught up in a lifestyle that that person is living in that may be harmful. But quite frankly, the best parts of my entire ministry uh, were not so much in the church on Sunday morning or in the Bible studies, although I love that. It was literally the opportunities I had with unbelievers, people that were questioning, people that were even antagonistic and atheists and agnostics. And those are some of the best times of ministry in life. And uh, praise God, some of them became Christian.
1: Yeah, I, I think alongside of that, you know, when you look at the way, you know, Peter was talking about too, Jesus around a table, I think of the ways that this sent out his disciples two by two. I think part of helping discern and maybe maybe guard against, you know, uh maybe subtle areas of compromise that maybe you might be allured or tempted into is if you're around, you know, people that aren't following Christ, be around them with other Christians. So, you know, my, my wife and I, you know, have friends of ours that aren't that aren't followers of Christ, and we, we love spending time with them together. And not that we don't do it individually, and not that Jesus didn't have conversations or spend time with those that um, you know needed Him and, and were, were lost and were you know uh, in need of a, of a Savior and a physician, but so much of His time spent with those that were lost was with His disciples. And I think that when the world can see, and non-Christians see, the way that we are with each other and the love that we have for one another, um, that's the very thing that Jesus actually says that will validate the truth of, of who he is uh, as the Son of God.
0: All right, here's another question from a listener. It starts off with this comment. I love the guy panel. That's a nice way to start. Always thoughtful, and I always learn something new. I would like some thought about hearing from God. How do you hear God's voice?
4: Guys, I think we've covered that a bit sometimes in the past, but I think it's one of the most common questions that we all wrestle with, right? If we believe that God is real, and if we believe what Paul says, things like, in him we live and move and have our being, or what the Psalms say, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the heights of the heaven, you are there, to the depths of the earth, you are there. So if if we if we have a belief about that, and that then this God who is real, who is also around us and accessible— then it does really bring up the question, how do we be able to discern His voice? And I think one of the things we talked about, Justin, you just referenced, was the idea of doing our discipleship journey and going out into the least and the lost two by two. I think that kind of idea holds in this this, uh, question of hearing God's voice. I do think those nudges of the Spirit um, are, are in those places where we hear without ears. But I think to confirm those things, and to talk with trusted brothers and sisters about the kinds of things they're hearing, because our discernment can absolutely be tinged with our personal desires and our passions and our wants, and maybe what we want to hear versus what we're actually hearing. But there's certainly long histories within Christian traditions that talk about the ability to discern that still small voice of God as it intersects, again, in our places without ears, but in the impressions of the Spirit and the nudgings of the Spirit— and in the in the checkings of the community where we're accountable as well and not just going off and saying, I heard something from God and everybody else better deal with it. And even though that has happened and people have abused this idea, I think we have to be careful not to then throw out the entire bathwater that God doesn't speak in those nudgings uh, in the context of accountability as well.
2: Oh, of course he does. And he will continue to do that. But here's kind of the key. I worked uh, with the charismatic movement for a long time. And wonderful people, but my experience with the charismatic movement is that everybody was hearing from the Lord every day, in many cases, uh, without anybody being able to back it up. And so I had to do some real research and study, and what I finally came back with and did some teaching on was simply this. The primary way we hear God's voice is through His Word. That's number one. Mm -hmm. So we need to be enmeshed in the Word, and not only so we memorize it, but that it becomes our lifestyle. Secondly, we need to be enmeshed in the Christian community where we're open with our thinking and we're open with our life to brothers and sisters in Christ who will say, what are you thinking about? Or where did you get that idea from? And we work that out together. When you do those two, then you're in a much better position to hear that still small voice. But remember, there are other voices out there too, Satan's voices out there. And the biggest problem I have is my voice, my inner voice for what I want when I want it. And that's why when I hear that still small voice, I have no problem coming to you guys and submitting that to you for you to tell me, hey, I can't find that in Scripture, or you're off, or yes, we affirm that.
4: Yeah.
3: Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. The, the, I mainly hear the voice of God when I read the Bible. Secondarily, I hear the uh, voice of God when I go to church, and yet the Bible talks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So... When we address one another in Christ, in in Christian fellowship, I hear the voice of God. I hear the voice of God when I hear good biblical preaching. Mm-hmm. The inner stuff, the inner still small voice stuff, is just hard to discern. How do you know it's you and not, uh, you know, the devil? Or so the, the sure thing is Scripture and a good biblical church and Christians who will hold you accountable and, and say, wait a minute, that's not what that verse means. Or just because you had a dream doesn't mean you're supposed to move to Toledo, you know. So just, I think,
2: Scripture— <laughs> What's wrong with Toledo? Ch- I grew up in Toledo. Yeah. Yeah, Come on. you did. <laughs> just- <laughs> <laughs> but,
3: but seriously, Scripture, Christian fellowship, good preaching. I don't doubt that God can give you a dream. I've had them. And I don't doubt God can do supernatural stuff because he does. But that stuff gets real subjective and Satan the Bible says can appear as an angel of light. So you've got to test every vision against scripture. Yeah, I I
1: agree with everyone, with all that. So that's so good. And I, I you know, I really I really believe God has so much more to say to us than we give him space to speak. And and I think one of the one of the rhythms that I've been Um, trying to cultivate is just the the rhythm of silence. And so I I have specific points of the day where I'm just silent before the Lord. I'll often have maybe a scripture I'll meditate on. Um, Sometimes I'll journal. Um, But for this is such a huge question. So many great books have been written on it. And maybe I'll just recommend one for if this listener wants to take a deeper dive. But um, uh, Dallas Willard wrote a book called Hearing God. (laughs) And uh, I read that first book back when I was in college, and I've been rereading it recently uh, again, and it's uh, so helpful, and I would highly recommend it to this
2: listener. It's good stuff. Yep.
0: All right, nicely done, gentlemen. I approve. Once again, here's a question. We've got limited time left, so maybe one or two can answer this. It's always a very sensitive subject. Jesus talked a lot about healing the sick. I know that was part of how he was revealing himself through these miracles. Many, many people are always wondering, will God heal my sick uh, person in my life? And you pray and pray and pray, and sometimes he does and sometimes he does not. Um, People struggle with understanding and reconciling those real-life experiences. Any wisdom for them?
3: God is a God of healing. He often heals us but it's not something we can demand. And some of the TV preachers, uh, I I remember a guy in a wheelchair saying that he went to some uh, evangelistic meeting, and they told me, Pastor, if I had faith, I'd get up. And I do have faith in Christ, but I can't move. And I mean, just some of this teaching can be so off and damning, and to which we got to respond, Timothy, take a little wine for the sake of your frequent stomach ailments. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, name it and claim it. He says, take your medicine. Mm -hmm. And it says in the Old Testament, now when Elisha became ill of the illness of which he was to die, nothing was wrong with Elisha's faith. He raised people from the dead, but he died of an illness. So I think you can have full faith in Christ and die of an
2: illness. I have seen people healed right in front of me around the world. I know the Lord heals. I've also buried people that I prayed over for months along with others. And the conclusion I've come to is simply this. The Lord heals for his own purposes, not for my relief. And if I understand that, then I'm in a better position to move forward in this world and understand that whether I live or die, I belong to the Lord.
0: Very nice.
4: Yeah, I
2: don't
0: have... Yeah.
4: Yeah. No. Nothing to add there. Just I think that you guys said it so well, right? We're we're all destined to die at some point, and that's just a hard, hard, hard truth. And we long to heal our, the people in our lives, but sometimes God says it's just it's just time. It's different, yeah. and the, and I get
0: it. Yeah. So yep. I just got to run right now, gentlemen. Uh, but a nice comment uh, to the guy talk guys. Just want to say I really hope all your wives are aware of how fortunate they are that they have husbands who love the Lord you're all to be respected and loved by those in your lives. Glad to be in the same family of God with you. Isn't that nice? It's Very kind. Yeah. Thank really you, nice gentlemen, God. so Thank much. You. That wraps up Guy Talk. We're going to take a little break. We come back. Pastor Eric Davis is going to talk about Luke chapter 11. Can hardly wait. Be right back. That's a encore presentation, by the way, of, pa- of Pastor Eric Davis. Be right back.
3: are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: Welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to be uh, inviting back to the program Eric Davis. He's pastor from uh, Cornerstone Church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and he was, uh, last time he was on, he was a gigantic hit with our listeners, especially between the ages of 52 and 52 and a half. It was an overwhelming response, so I thought we gotta get him back on. Eric, welcome back.
5: Thank you. It's a privilege to be on the show, Bill. I appreciate
0: it. <laughs> Isn't it fun to be a, uh, just to be a big hit? And listeners loved you when you were on first time.
5: Uh, well, God is gracious.
0: No, I appreciate know. It. I know. And I tease a little bit because I think uh, we can't take ourselves too seriously in life, can we?
5: Absolutely. We get into trouble when we do that.
0: I know. That's one of the things I learned from you. So thanks for reminding me once again
5: oh well, I'm learning from you bill you're you're, you're the uh, expert in that category as we all know
0: I appreciate that so when I think about prayer and I think about um how we evaluate prayer as Christians I sometimes think people evaluate prayer based on how much of their prayers are being answered the way they'd like right how's your prayer life well I gotta say I'm getting some of my prayers answered the way I like that doesn't seem right
5: yeah it's uh i feel like every once in a while I have these little Sort of prayer reformations in my life where right? my, my prayer life, my spiritual life, uh, I can plateau, I can feel stale, I can feel dry at times. And Luke 11 is one of those passages that every time I go to it, you know, when I'm in one of those, uh, unfortunately, all too common seasons, um, it, it sort of breathes new life uh, into really my, not only my walk with God, but, but my prayer life, which really for me is, is, is critical. I mean, I, I live and and die by, by prayer. And I love the passage because there's a couple things Jesus does. He, you know, we can over, if if you, if people have struggled like me, I can overcomplicate prayer. I have to say this exact thing. I have to do it this way. It has to be at this particular time. And there is something to be said for a time that's set aside just like if we're meeting with someone but he he, he kind of simplifies it and and shoes a lot of those surface things away and for in any he, he frames it in terms of a time of of communion with our father and and i love how he begins the prayer with that term father mm-hmm. you know what i mean i i i the christian the 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 Christian sort of culture thing was was very new to me. I grew up in the far, far west coast and a completely atheistic uh, neo-pagan culture. So I I had no sort of cultural Christian baggage when I came to the faith. And this idea that not only is God the the creator of the universe who made everything, we can know him as father, and he is eager to listen to us and to hear us and to commune with us. When I first came to Christ, that was that was a, a a profound thing to me. I pray that 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 would never get old.
0: Yeah. To me now, Eric. I'm I'm already fascinated by the idea that you came from the far West Coast and didn't have any yes, cultural Christian baggage, and now you're a pastor. So I I got to figure out. I got to hear that journey.
5: Yeah. So I leave out no up details. In, uh, right. Of course, <laughs> we'll keep it uh, PG rated for your uh, wonderful listeners. Of here. course. Um, you know, just, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. You know, I grew up in Western Oregon in a, in a town that's known as the Amsterdam of America and rightly so. Um, and so, you know, illicit drug use and this kind of thing was a very normal thing to me. I didn't know anything else growing up. And then, uh, I, I, I moved for me, it was moving East to Wyoming. You know, most people consider it moving West. I moved out East to Wyoming Uh, to take a break after I graduated from college just to sort of sow my wild oats even more than I was and to drag my leash even more than I was. And I had been indoctrinated with uh, the idea of Darwinian gradualism and evolution. I loved learning that uh, I was an animal and had no purpose in life, that there was purely a materialistic explanation behind uh, why I was here. That really fit my moral compass well. And uh, I came to Wyoming, and what what I intended for evil, God intended for good. And uh, long story short, I met, uh, who's now my wife, and the Lord, was she's actually from the area there, from the city, Twin Cities. The Lord was drawing her. She came to faith in Christ first and started challenging me along the lines of my materialistic Darwinian worldview, and uh, I just began reading the Bible, and uh, God was so gracious, he opened my eyes and drew me to, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I
0: love it. (laughs) <laughs> I never get tired of these stories, Eric.
5: Yeah, God is gracious. He was seeking after me, though I was running the opposite direction, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, so let's get back to Luke 11, where the prayer starts with Father. You understand yeah. Him now to be your Heavenly Father, and then continue what you learned about uh, prayer from the Jesus, Jesus' teaching on prayer in Luke 11.
5: Well, that that that's really the, the entry point to prayer, and we never get past that, is that, Father. And, and I understand that, you know, some of my own congregation and some of the listeners here, we've had a lesson in positive experience, perhaps, with our earthly fathers. But God does not want us to force that upon who he is as father. He's a father of the fatherless. Uh, he, he, he is so loving, so tender. He's the perfect father. And so when we, when we think about prayer, for me, what has been so helpful is to remember he is a perfect father. And what do we think about when we think of a perfect father? We think of compassion. We think of providing, we think of leading, we think of loving, we think of guiding, we think of discipline as well, and always out of love and mercy and grace. Uh, and, and so when, when, when we enter into prayer, instead of thinking of prayer as this sort of stoic transaction between me and like a cosmic vending machine in the clouds, this sort of thing that I do to check off this duty, I can feel good about myself my spiritual discipline. And it is something that, you know, we should be disciplined to do, but we do it because we are having communion with the perfect father who is God of the universe. J.I. Packer in his excellent book, Knowing God, he says the Christian name for God is father. (laughs) And, And that really just, I mean, for me, that's, that, that settles me, that relaxes me as I'm stressed and pulled in so many directions, like so many of us that I am sitting down with a father who wants to listen to me and he's operating the molecules and the galaxies and listening to millions of other people. But at the same time, the Bible says, places like Psalm 139, he is fully present, fully attentive. And not only that, because he is father, he is fully compassionate and tender. And he's not sort of scowling like, Oh my goodness, Eric, you're asking for that again. You're struggling with that again you're bringing that to me again. That's never, that. that is in no way the picture that we get from Holy Scripture of God as our Father. So I, I think that that can motivate us to prayer and sort of shoo away maybe some uh, some some false ideas we get uh, about prayer and, and really making it more than just a spiritual discipline, but a privilege to sit with my Father, who is always eager to listen.
0: Eric, that's beautiful, and I love it. And how would you help someone unlearn some of the negative things they have about God, the Father, based on their own father.
5: Yeah, that's—too uh, many of us have, you know, have felt that sort of scarring of a Genesis 3 world. We, we have to have our minds renewed, um, and God's Word is sufficient. We believe—we uh, understand that Christians believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, which is to say we not only believe the, that, that the Bible is the, the Word of God, but—and when we practice it, it has—it has power in our lives. So what I what I would encourage others as I encourage myself is to go to some of these critical passages that, that talk about God as Father. I think of Psalm 103 uh, is a critical passage that I, I like to go to, I like to take people to, um, as a father has compassion on his children, and maybe you didn't experience that, but let us renew our minds of Scripture, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm, uh, Psalm, um, you know, 116, uh, verse 1 and 2 talk about the nearness of God listening to us. Um, You know, uh, 1 John 3 talk about, See what great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. Um, And John there, really, his language in the Greek is exclamatory. Look at this great love that God, notwithstanding what's happened to us with our biological fathers, that God has showered his love on us and he has adopted us. I also like uh, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5 again in this mind renewal. This is what it has to be, a soul renewal, mind renewal, heart renewal by the power of the scripture alone. Uh, It talks about how God loved us before he even created us. God sought to adopt us before he made us, even before he made the world. What kind of a Planning and a love is that that before God started to you know break out the proverbial hammers and nails to the universe, He thought about us. That I want to adopt you. Mm. And that might not that might not parallel your biological father experience, but I'll, but I'll tell you what that, that that transcends all negative experiences we've had for fathers. I also like to go to Psalm sixty-eight verse five. Psalm sixty-eight five again, a father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows is God and is holy habitation. I mentioned Psalm 103 Um, and John 3, 16, let that never get old to us. Some of us have known that from our earliest memories for God so loved the world. So that's a God, but then he frames it in a father language that he gave what his only begotten son. So that tells us what kind of a father he is. He's a giving father. You might not have had, and we might not have had a giving father. This father is a generous giving father. He gives his greatest child his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. And I want to encourage some of us who have struggled with uh, our experiences with our earthly fathers, because this is a father, if we notice from John 3:16 again, let that never get old to us, that verse, that he isn't saying, okay, he's not sort of furrowed brow in heaven tapping his foot. Let's see if you can be good enough for me. Uh, let's see if you can prove yourself to me. That's some of the experiences that many of us have had with our earthly fathers and and that can damage, that can damage a, a, a guy or a gal. He says, let me show you grace and mercy. I already gave, despite your imperfections, that I gave my greatest son, that you just believe, you just put childlike faith. You, you just trust in him and put your confidence in him. You are my child forever. And as the great crescendo in Romans eight thirty-eight to 39 says, nothing can separate us from that love of God. Look. God the Father is never going to be known as a father who disowns any children, who sort of unadopts. He, he's not going to go back to the uh, adoption agency, as it were, and say, well, you know, this son of mine, this tutter, they're not quite performing up to the way that they should. So, uh, you know, you can take them back. That will never happen. That will never happen with one of God's children because, because why? What was the price of adoption that was paid? The Lord Jesus Christ, God, God accomplished our adoption. God paid for our adoption, so we're not going to we're not going to be able to get some refund here by anything we do. And that is, to me, Bill, that is so motivating, so encouraging, not only to those who have struggled tragically with less than ideal experiences with biological fathers, but it helps my prayer life as uh, I find it's something we can all struggle with at times. It motivates me to go before my father and just to be able to be super honest transparent he knows and not only does he know
0: he loves I love uh, nice long coherent thoughts and you just gave us one I love it but I'm gonna take a little break and when we come back we're gonna continue our conversation uh, pastor Eric Davis from Cornerstone Church in Jackson Hole Wyoming we'll be right back
3: a special repeat performance.
0: Welcome right back. back to the show. I'm Eric Davis on the studio line. He is from Cornerstone Church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I'm talking about the privilege of prayer. And that's uh, really based out of Luke chapter 11. And I just want to go back there one more time, if I can, Eric, and look at Luke 11. And when I see how it starts with, um, you know, Father, hallowed be your name. And Jesus is giving us this as a model for prayer, or is it a prayer you like to say in its entirety, word for word?
5: Great question. Or both. Um, Yeah, so it's, I think from my study of the passage, uh, both Luke 11 and the parallel from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, I believe it's sort of both. Okay. Um, I want to qualify that, though. Uh, I don't think he is giving us a rote formula in the sense of you must say these exact words, you know, or or sorry, blocked field goal. You know, your prayer is going to hit <laughs> the uprights in heaven, right? And uh, doesn't count. You know what I mean? Um, I, I don't. I don't see that. Jesus is is giving us a, sort of a, a launch pad. You, you you can pray those things certainly, and I think those you can say the exact words. I should say, and those are great things to say because they're they're packed full of meaning. I think what Jesus is is giving us here is not so much words to recite but an idea or a general format to follow um it's a, it's sort of like a. I we i think we can think of it as training wheels a guide to prayer a mm-hmm. a, a, a format to launch us to greater prayers you know father uh the uh, identifying with the compassion and the mercy of god and then hallowed be your name is sort of just a, a fancy english word for uh, god i want your name to be holy and known as holy you know, and then he goes down the list, may your kingdom come. This is a format that we see in a lot of the Old Testament prayers. Now, what's interesting if we get too caught up and, you know, well, I need to recite this verbatim or it doesn't count. Interestingly, in the rest of the New Testament, epistles and the gospels and such, we don't see anybody praying this exact prayer. Though there are many prayers throughout uh, the New Testament and almost all the epistle Paul epistles Paul has prayers. In the book of Acts, we have several prayers, Acts 4, the church praying together, Acts 5 as well. Never do they recite these exact words. That's not to say that they're throwing Jesus' teaching by the wayside, uh, quite the contrary. Again, it's a launch pad, I think a, a training wheels to guide us into praying these sort of concepts as we have fellowship with our Father.
0: Mm-hmm. And I sometimes like to say, I would love to quote a piece of Scripture that I have memorized, would you mind? People go, yeah. Then you just hit them with, "Father, hell would be your name? Your kingdom Absolutely. come." And they start to go, "Wait a minute, I know that too."
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's nice to
0: point them right to Scripture to go, "That's right out of God's Word." And I'm a big fan of memorizing anything in God's Word.
5: I'm right there with you. Psalm one nineteen eleven says, "Your Word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you." So that that treasuring of God's Word in our heart, as you know, just really has a, a wonderful sanctifying effect. So I struggle. Uh, sometimes, to my shame, Bill, I, I, I don't want to pray. I, I'm thinking, oh, I have too much to do, and, you know, I don't always see, like, this tangible product when I'm done praying, as if I go out and do a project in the yard or, you know, build something. I can see, oh, I did something. It kind of gives me this instant gratification. So I, I struggle at various, various times uh, with my prayer life, unfortunately.
0: I th- I think, Eric, if I try to do plea bargaining with God, praying is a little bit more tiresome. But if I just go yeah. and worship Him in prayer— Exactly and trusting him for the well, outcome,
5: then it's a lot easier. Excellent point. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great advice.
0: Oh, I'm thanks. going to steal
5: that from my congregation, oh, please if you do. don't mind, Bill. No,
0: please do. And then when I think about Paul, when you just mentioned Paul, you know, at the end of his life he said, you know, I'm the chief of all sinners. Now I don't know if there's hyperbole being used in scripture. I don't know if you would say what was Paul trying to say, that he is the worst of all sinners?
5: Yeah, that's a that's a great question and certainly there is hyperbole used. Uh, because Scripture is a human book as well as a divine book, meaning God used, you know, human instruments, uh, human authors um, when he inspired his word. But it seems to me in Paul's mind that he really is, you know, I, I, I don't think that necessarily if, you know, if if you had this list of humanity, however many billions of people have ever existed, that Paul would necessarily say, well, I'm I'm top there on how many sins and the gravity of the sins and all that. I'm not sure if that's his point there, so much as 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 he just he was he got he was so close to God, he loved the Lord Jesus so much, he was so enamored by the grace of God Himself, being the apostle of grace, that as he grew older, he grew closer to Christ, more like Christ, more in love with Christ. Older in his in his walk, I think as he looked back on the things that he did, the attitudes that he had, the thoughts that that he thought, we know from places like Acts seven where you know he is approving of the uh, of the martyring of Stephen and you know throwing Christians in jail, murdering Christians. I think he just had such a grief and such an understanding of his own sin, and even even daily, just his own thoughts. Sometimes he struggled with it. I think he's just sort of exclamatory. I, I'm I'm the I'm the biggest sinner I know for something mm-hmm. like
0: that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if we can shift gears a little bit, I love your um, your. Your thoughts on prayer, and thank you for that. I'm also wanting to get some um, counsel from you on helping each other navigate through conflict. And I know you've done a series yeah. on Philemon, which is uh, you packed a lot of um, a lot of punch out of that that book. So I'd love for you to give us a little bit of counsel on that.
5: Well, Philemon is is an excellent book. I, I uh, finished preaching by God's grace the Gospel of Matthew. Took about six and a half years, and I wanted to give the congregation a little break and do something where we could see the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And you know, the, the Philemon is a fascinating book. I personally have underestimated the power and the and the helpfulness of it, uh, especially in conflict, because I just am less familiar with it. I, I was, but uh, we the book of Philemon is is really about there's there's a, a, a significant conflict, a significant potential for resentment, fractured relationship, bitterness. Uh, where you have, you have the Apostle Paul, who's in jail in Rome. It's a brief context here. Uh, Philemon had been saved and came to Christ under Paul's ministry. He had a slave, which was very common in, in first century Roman Empire. Slavery then a little bit different than as we think of the transatlantic slavery. And Onesimus was not yet a believer, and yet he was a, he was a, a slave under Philemon. He flees, and, and runaway slaves were considered criminals in the Roman Empire, Steals probably a bunch of money from Philemon, runs about a thousand miles away from where Philemon lived in Colosse, goes to Rome to just to get lost in the biggest city in the empire. By God's grace, runs into the Apostle Paul, where it's like, "Hey, you're Onesimus. I know you're. I know Philemon. Oh my goodness, you know Philemon." Onesimus comes to faith in Christ and starts to minister with and alongside Paul, and so you have this situation. Where Philemon has had crimes committed against him. Onesimus is a criminal. You have, there was a church in Philemon's house. They knew about the situation and with Philemon's family. Paul wants, Paul is getting blessed by Onesimus' ministry to him, but he realizes I have to send him back because that's what's right to reconcile. So a lot of potential fear, not only you can imagine from Onesimus, and not wanting to go, I don't know if I want to go back. That is such a hard situation. And in Philemon also, you yeah, know, that guy wronged me. I mean, that, that, that's felt. And so Paul has a situation where he is skillfully navigating this relational hazard. And there are some wonderful principles we can pull out of there, um, uh, from, from Paul's just skillful
2: mm-hmm.
5: uh, uh, navigating through these, these, these hazards and, and, and there are some, some principles that were very helpful. To me, very basic things like Paul doesn't dance around the issue. He speaks directly to Philemon. You know, he doesn't sort of have this has have this passive aggressive. He speaks very gently to him. He speaks very truthfully to him, very lovingly to him. They speak directly. That's so important. I know sometimes in conflict, as I, as I do some counseling, people don't always do that. Maybe they'll, you know, a Facebook message or a text or through the grapevine. And that, a hundred times out of a hundred, that does not help resolve conflict. Um, he also, uh, Paul, he, he appeals with humble love to Philemon to resolve the conflict instead of asserting his rights. You know, he says, hey, I, I have enough confidence in Christ in verse 8 or boldness to, I, I could really command you to do what the Bible says, but you know what, I'm going to appeal to you in love. You I know you want to to do what's right. You want to to receive this brother and, and forgive him. And I think, that principle from 1 Corinthians 13 of love believes the best. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt instead of making these assumptions, these, these, these prejudgments and saying, you know what? Yeah, that might have happened in the, in the past, but let's wipe the slate, give people uh, an opportunity here. Let's, let's think about the body of Christ. Let's get our eyes off of what I want and my rights, and I was wronged. Yes, you were wronged. But 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, hey, in the body of Christ, let's rather be wronged. We have the freedom to do that than allowing these things to fester. A lot of forgiveness there, a lot of of humility, reminding him of the grace of God in his life. Remember what God has done. He also encourages him to uh, embrace God's sovereignty here. Look at God. That's what we need to do in conflict. Look at God. What is God doing? God is always involved in the lives of his children, including conflict. He's always doing something good. Look what God has done. Romans 8:28 28 is still in our Bible in conflict. Sometimes I like to throw it out, namely that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called for those his purposes. And that is especially true in conflict. A lot more we could say, but those are some things that really helped me uh, well, as I studied this book. Yeah,
0: Eric, there's a lot in that book. And thank you for helping us see God's word more richly the way you have done so today. It's just, I could hang God's with you. Is- I could hang with you a lot. Thank you.
5: God's Word is sufficient and so helpful for every struggle of life.
0: Thanks so much, Eric. Eric Davis has been my guest, pastor at Cornerstone Church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Have a great night, and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.